Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All across New England, an epidemic of opioid addiction and overdose. When you're thick into this disease of addiction, you have three alternatives. Recovery, jail, or death. Because there's really nothing else. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Today we'll dig deep into the causes of this crisis with health reporter Martha Biebinger. We'll travel to Cape Cod to hear firsthand the stories of those affected. And we'll look for new solutions, including for those most at risk of overdose, inmates getting out of prison. They say the old ways don't work. Get your life together, here's a $50 Walmart card and I'll move on, you know, and it's never been successful. We'll also examine the role of New England's traditional dairy industry in creating the landscapes we love. That working landscape that people so cherish about New England. The dairy farms are the lion's share of what people see. Remembering Forgotten Farms, next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Coming up, life and death on Cape Cod. An off-duty cop found me like in the woods, on my dashboard, not breathing. They just saw a kid that was passed out in his car. The security guard found me and got me inside. The MTs gave me Narcan. Today we're looking at the national crisis of opioid addiction and overdose, a problem that's taken hold especially hard here in New England. For some perspective, the rate of overdose deaths nationally has more than doubled since 2000, and nearly every New England state has exceeded that national average, with big spikes in the last few years, coming in Maine, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. In the Bay State, more people died of an unintentional overdose in the first half of this year than in the same period last year. So first, we're going to turn to Martha Biebinger. She covers health for WBUR Boston and Common Health. Martha, welcome to Next. Thank you so much, John. So how bad is the overdose epidemic in Massachusetts right now? Well, we are seeing on average um, between four and five people die a day. The number of overdoses that don't end in death are also up. There are all kinds of new complications in emergency rooms as people take an opioid in addition to something else, and emergency room doctors have to try to figure out how to bring people back, not just from respiratory failure, but from other uh, failures of their systems. So it's, it's quite complicated and, and, and rich and scary. How does what's happening in Massachusetts track with national trends? Well, Massachusetts does not have the highest overdose death rates in the country. You know, West Virginia is still quite high, Ohio, some other places. But there is, um, there is a real concentration here that shows up in some other ways. Uh, if this doesn't get us too far off tangent, John, we have seen the highest rate of organ donations after overdose, the highest rate of increase of organ donations mm. after overdose than any other part of the country. So... Depending on how you look at the issue, um, how you measure it, uh, there is a a big, big problem here. You talked about the complications that are coming into this. I I guess I'm wondering, 
what you see is causing this spike in overdose deaths over the course of the last few years? Is it strictly more people using, more people transitioning from prescription opioids? What are the factors here that are causing all of these deaths? It's all of those things and fentanyl and a combination of drugs. So um, your listeners probably know that fentanyl is a, a more intense opioid than heroin, which many people um, have already been struggling with on the streets. We're even seeing um, carfentanyl, which is which is like fentanyl on steroids in some parts of the country, uh, Ohio in particular. But in Massachusetts, it's really the fact that some dealers are cutting heroin with this more intense opioid, fentanyl. So that's one issue. A second one is that many people are experimenting with heroin or fentanyl in combination with other things. And those combinations are are making it very difficult to treat some overdoses. In 2015, Barnstable County on Cape Cod was ranked first in Massachusetts in terms of overdose deaths per capita. Part of the response has been increased use of the overdose reversal drug Narcan by first responders and citizens. Ryan Swikert brings us a story that's told by family members, police, and EMS workers struggling with this problem. Feels like you get to the top of the roller coaster. Just like a tingling in the back of your neck, in your head. And you know that feeling where your stomach just drops when you start going down? You know, like I could feel something like coming down. I can kind of feel it coming on. It's like a huge rush. Like an egg was cracked on the top of my head. Your whole head's like on fire. That's how it feels. When you do a lot of heroin, you feel it in your lungs. You're like, <sighs> feel a tightness of breath. The lack of oxygen is what kills you. Like it has a direct effect on whatever it is in your brain that controls your lungs. I used. I hit myself. And I was late for work, so I used I it all. Consciously know that I was gonna overdose. And I remember like thinking like, oh, like, oh you know, this is too much. And whoa. I think that's all I said actually. I was like, whoa. I pulled out, and that's the last thing I remember. Overdosing, you know, going like probably 30 miles an hour on a really windy Walking like typical cape road driver's seat i guess i fell and you know i don't remember having any dreams or any like white light moments just didn't wake up you know your eyes close and uh that's that it was literally nothing you know it's just like a deep sleep with no with no dreams it's just black you know what it was it was the winter it was February, but it was Wednesday. On Wednesday nights, my husband and the kids go bowling, and it's my time to be home alone, and I go to bed early usually. Um, I heard them come in, and I didn't get up or anything, and I, I think that there was a friend with them, and my son had to drive the friend home. Um, the phone rang, and our son was having a hard time in the car. He had felt dizzy, and he had asked Anthony to drive for him. And Anthony looked over, and he was passed out. I, I got up. Like I said, I was in bed. I had my pajamas on. I put slippers on, and I grabbed my Narcan. Um, I don't know why. He had been clean for 18 months. Got another phone call, and Anthony said he had stopped breathing, and he was close to our house, but he had seen the police at a um, gas station down the street from us, so he pulled in there. So I got in my car, and I drove down to the gas station, and they were doing CPR on him.
we get the call. Um, you know, it could be you know an overdose coming as an overdose, coming as a possible overdose, um, and we'll we'll respond. You know, like a medical emergency, lights and sirens. You see a call that you know somebody male or female is passed out either in a parking lot or on a bench or in a car. You know, we get there and there's somebody passed out in the bathroom, uh, and they're blue, and they're not breathing. That, that, that's a sign of someone that is dead or near death. Just like any time that the body doesn't have enough oxygen, it starts affecting the brain. The brain actually is very selfish, so it starts shunting the blood away from the extremities. And that's why the fingers will start turning blue and the lips will start turning blue because to the brain, those parts aren't important. On the side of the gas station, I think there were two cruisers and they had them on the on the ground between the cruiser and the store. She either sh his shirt was off or unbuttoned or his chest was exposed. Um, it, wasn't, it didn't appear to be breathing. I was scared to death. I, th I believe at that time they told me they had found a needle. So I said, I've got Narcan. I was all thumbs at that point. I kept dropping it. So I said, Donna, you got to put your big girl pants on and do this. So I went and sat in front of the police cruiser because the lights from the headlights were good. And I put it together and I went and gave him the Narcan and nothing happened. So I went back down and put to put my second um, vial together. And at that point, um, one of the paramedics who I know well came over and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, it's okay, Don, I'm here now. And he took the Narcan from me and he gave the second dose. Within a minute, you can start to see the color come back in their face, chest start to rise, and then... <gasps> he came to and he said he could hear me talking and he knew everything, you know, was... Okay, he doesn't know what happened before that. An off-duty cop found me, like, in the woods, on my dashboard, not breathing. They just saw a kid that was passed out in his car. The security guard found me and got me inside. The EMTs gave me Narcan. They said I was the color of a blue Gatorade when I woke up in the hospital. I woke up in the back of an ambulance, um, two EMTs. With a cop standing over me. I saw my brother, and then I saw the nurse in front of me. I, I woke up more just confused and overwhelmed. I was like, what the heck just happened? Like a pounding headache and like in a neck brace. I had uh, pulled out into two lanes of traffic. Um, they had to break me out of the car. I was in shock. I didn't even know what to tell them. I was embarrassed. I was thankful. There are people who wake up and are confused. There are some people that wake up swinging. There are some people who wake up yelling, and then there are other people who just wake up. Understand that if a person overdoses and they're given Narcan, they immediately go into withdrawal, and now they're dope sick. I think everybody's heard about um, people going into the emergency room and coming out and shooting up in their car before they even leave the parking lot. I know we've had an individual like multiple times in one weekend. I know that, so it could, you know, within the same, probably, yeah, probably twice in the same 24-hour period. Obviously, just they're not ready to, you know, for recovery yet, and they just keep on using. Have people, you know, overdosed and used Narcan and used again? Sure. It's not a treatment plan, but it enables people to stay alive. You keep hoping that this time that you've given someone Narcan is the time that they decide to go get help.
I'd like to say that was the end of it for him, but it wasn't. The calling is more than something I can understand. Imagine sitting at a table and like being famished, like wanting to eat so bad and the food's right in front of you and knowing that that food is slowly killing you. Like, but how do you tell somebody like, oh, don't eat? It's like, I'm hungry and it's hardwired into me. I'm gonna be hungry. Um, to resist that urge is really tough. I had trouble stopping. Like, I, I couldn't stop when everybody else was, you know? And um, um, and it's tough to know exactly when it changed to, you know, I have no control over this anymore. Somewhere out there in the world, there's, like, a ATM security tape of me, like, crying, taking money that wasn't mine. You know, I wasn't getting high anymore. There was no high. I'd say to myself, please help me get this thought out of my head. It was... Seeking out drugs just to feel normal again. Whoever you are, God, whoever it is, just help me get this thought out of my head. He actually had overdosed 17 times. Unless you have it in your heart, you know, the brain says, I want to be clean. Um, it doesn't always work that way because sometimes I think the body... The disease of the thing sucks you in so much. He had been in a detox at Gosnold. He had just come out about five days before that. And it was the first time I absolutely said to him, you are not coming home. And he called me the next morning. He said, Mom, I really want to get into this sober home. But I'm afraid if I'm not home that I'll never stay clean to get there. So I said, okay, come on home. So he did. He was safe at home with me. But you're never safe. It doesn't matter where you are, you're never safe. I came home and found him. I always feel like when you're thick into this disease of addiction, you have three alternatives. Recovery, jail, or death. Because there's really nothing else. He's done all three now. I always make sure that I don't say never will I ever use again. I don't want to ever use again, and I'm going to keep working towards that. But I don't know, I try not to look too far down the road. I try to like, you know, it's corny and it's cliche, but I really try and keep it in today. I know I don't want to use today, and I know I uh, probably won't want to use tomorrow either. I got clean again, and I've been clean ever since. 20 months. Three and a half years now? Uh, it'll be three years in July. I feel good, I feel real good. Uh, I feel like I'm never turning back now. I have too much to, too much to live for. That story is called Short of Breath. It's by Ryan Swikert, produced as part of the Transom Story Workshop. Thanks to PRX. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky, and I'm joined by health reporter Martha Biebinger of WBUR. 
Martha, over the summer, you did some really interesting reporting on a facility in Boston called SPOT, the supportive place for observation and treatment. It's uh, not a supervised injection site, but a place that drug users can go while they're high. I want to start with a short clip from a patient you spoke with named Tommy. It's a lot safer than being out there on the street, possibly walking in the traffic. It's possibly I might OD if I was alone out there. Martha, what can you tell us about this place? It's on the first floor of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. It's in their former conference room. They they turned their conference room into what looks like a, a mini clinic. There are reclining armchairs, lots of poles that can hold IV bags. There's a probably a dozen green oxygen canisters over in one corner because they find themselves giving a lot of oxygen to people to try to keep their oxygen levels up so that they won't go into the overdose state. It's staffed by a nurse and a peer counselor uh, during the, the regular business hours. There is a doctor on hand if needed, and that person is called in often because they do have people go into overdose. This clinic is across the street from the Boston Medical Center. So if they have a patient who needs more serious care than they can provide in this clinic, they rush them across the street to the emergency room. Who who exactly are the patients and how many are there? Well, the clinic has been open for almost four months. They've seen 275 people but they've had 1,530 visits. So, John, you get the picture there of people who who use the space on a somewhat regular basis. What I know from speaking to people there, they're people who understand that they have an addiction. They can't stop taking this drug, but they're quite worried about what they're buying. They're worried about what's actually in the the bag that they've um, just purchased or someone has purchased on their behalf. So they they want to um, inject and then have somebody monitor their condition in case what they took did have fentanyl in it, for example. One other thing I'll tell you about this clinic, John, is that it's right next to a needle exchange program. It's down the street from a methadone clinic. There's a lot of activity in this area of people who are struggling with an addiction. And so Many of these people may spend their whole day on the streets around this clinic and and come in and out or at least in once a day to have somebody keep an eye on them. Aside from the, the treatment that people get, the staff there seem to be learning a lot of things about what happens during a drug high as a result of being able to, to monitor these patients. L- let's listen to another clip. This is April Donahue. She's a nurse who works at SPOT. What you see subjectively looking at someone and what their vital signs are don't always match up. So, so what's she talking about there? What does she mean? So, so you might see a lot of nodding. You might see people stumbling, head hanging. And you might see them start to, to fall asleep a little bit, go into some really deep, um, I was going to say relaxed state, but it's relaxed in the sense of their respiratory system. So what April would expect to see in that case is very low oxygen rates, perhaps a very low pulse rate, but that's not what she sees. And the reason is because what they've taken often in addition to an opioid, heroin most commonly, might be um, 
gabapentin or a, a med for blood, a, a different medications for blood pressure or, or benzos for, for anxiety. And the effects of those drugs might offset the respiratory failure. So she might see somebody whose respiration is, is actually okay, but their heart rate is really slow. There might be some other body function that's really dropped. And she... If she wasn't monitoring their vital, her, the, the person's vital signs, which she does, I mentioned that they sit in a reclining chair, they've got a blood pressure cuff on, they've often got um, a pulse monitor on their finger. So she's seeing what's really going on inside as opposed to what it looks like. And those two things are not what she expects. That's so interesting. I, I'm wondering what they're learning about that line between uh, someone who is high and someone who is either close to or or overdosing on a drug. We heard in the documentary we just listened to about patients describing very slow, shallow breathing, uh, turning, in one case, as blue as a bottle of blue Gatorade. I, I'm wondering what the, the nurses might be learning here about that state between being high and really being in trouble. So what they're doing in this room is trying to give people enough oxygen so that they don't lose them and can keep them alive and, and give them some counseling when they wake up, maybe to get into treatment or maybe to take care of some other, some other medical needs. Here's the medical director at uh, SPOT, Dr. Jesse Gaeta, who's talking about what happens if you give someone Narcan. People sort of wake up vomiting, extremely agitated, sometimes sort of hallucinating, maybe having bowel movement in the moment, it's not pretty. So people don't want Narcan to be used on them unless it's absolutely necessary. I mean, they also don't want to die. Do you have a sense that a program like this is actually getting people to get that counseling they need, not just to get through the situation now, but to actually get treatment in the future? They are planning to do a formal analysis and study and submit that information to some of the research journals. They're hoping to be able to show that they can persuade people that they want, that that, that treatment is an option, that treatment can work for them. But um, it's very difficult. I mean, the, the people they see in this clinic have relapsed many times, been in and out of detox and treatment, and they know that addiction is a chronic disease and this is something that they'll be dealing with for life. Coming up, we'll look at more people searching for solutions to New England's opioid crisis, from a hackathon in Boston to a treatment program for prison inmates in Connecticut. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Today, we're exploring New England's opioid addiction and overdose crisis. As we heard from health reporter Martha Beeminger, the numbers across the region seem to be getting worse, and it's vexing health and law enforcement officials alike. But as you also heard, there's hope, including innovative programs like SPOT, where drug users can ride at a high. And as Martha found, teams of big thinkers, doctors, engineers, recovery workers, and users themselves recently gathered in Boston's Seaport District to brainstorm for solutions in what they called an opioid hackathon. Picture a big white-walled meeting room with flowcharts and diagrams scrolled across washable walls. Sounds like you guys are all ready. You're all ready? You're all pumped up? You ready? Yep. All right. Here we go. Dr. Ryan Carroll from Mass General, one of the MCs, looks down a growing line of people ready to pitch. 
Each person will have 60 seconds to describe a problem. Thank you. My name is Mike Duggan, 59. I'm the founder and CEO of Wicked Sober in Massachusetts. My problem is uh, finding out or being able to notify when somebody has an accidental overdose in a public restroom. Duggan suggests sensors on bathroom floors that would send an alert when someone is lying down. Dr. Jonathan Steer wants a way heroin patients could test drugs they buy on the street to see if the batch contains fentanyl. Steer, an OB at Boston Medical Center, often orders such tests for a patient who's already overdosed. To me, that seems like it's too late. Uh, People should be knowing when or if they are using fentanyl um, even before they are overdosing and coming to the hospital. After almost 70 pitches, these erstwhile strangers break for sandwiches and start networking into teams that will toss around solutions, test ideas, and build or design a plan. So I'm just making, I got an old T-shirt that was in the giveaway pile, and purple is the color of uh, recovery. Beth Bozier, who teaches industrial design at the Rhode Island School of Design, is using squares of the purple T-shirt to line a wearable pouch, something you might clip on a purse or backpack. The pouch would contain naloxone, the drug that reverses an opioid overdose, and be a visible sign that the wearer is an ally. The project is really about more than just having the medication there if someone goes into an overdose where you could save a life with it, but it's also to help try to counteract the stigma and the shame. As soon as you start having a metric of cost per life saved, that's a metric that people really want to know. Dr. Ben Bernot from Mass General sits around a table with members of the Naloxone Pouch team working out a business plan. The team decides that for every 10 pouches sold, one would get used and save a life. Even if only one out of 100 people with an ally case see an overdose and they reverse them, and their return on investment is uh, $1,500 per life. These are all really rough numbers. The teams have had just 24 hours to evolve from those pitches to their final presentations, for which they get just three minutes. Five winners will receive $1,000 each from GE, who's sponsoring the event. Welcome back, everybody. Well done. Dr. Carroll, the MC, brings the hackers back to the main room, and Aubrey Esters takes the stage. I've been sleeping in the doorway of 7-Eleven for a few months now. This morning, I woke up dope sick. Four to six people like me will die from unintentional overdoses in Massachusetts today. Esters' team proposes a mobile van that would travel to hotspots of heroin use around Boston. It would hand out clean needles, offer drugs that help patients stop using heroin, have counseling, and be a place to sit and have something to eat. Soon, it's Katrina Seraldo's turn. Seraldo, with Team USS Safe Space, proposes a place where heroin users could inject the drug with medical supervision. Boston police have said they would not allow that here, so the team would operate in international waters. Our immediate answer is to go on a boat. 12 nautical miles out, Under a Dutch flag, a full medical and behavioral health staff will welcome drug users to a safe space to consume drugs obtained elsewhere and to link them to all the services that they need. Judges hear from a team presenting a Fitbit-style bracelet that would track oxygen levels and automatically inject naloxone if levels drop and stay low. Another wants to place first aid boxes with naloxone and other supplies on street corners around Boston. Judges retreat for about an hour and then return with five winners. The first is a team that would add blinking lights or other alerts to opioid pill bottles once the prescribed time of use is up. The goal is to keep opioids away from teenagers or others who find drugs in a family medicine cabinet. 
This one was all about that very first day. Rx Return. The other winners are the Naloxone Pouch, an SMS texting program that would help users find services, the mobile van, and a recovery community center. Dr. David Barish, chief medical officer of the GE Foundation, says these projects will have widespread impact. To me, this weekend was a home run for the people that we're trying to help, for the community we're trying to help, and I think it really made a statement that GE is very much committed to the community. Hackathon teams can continue to work with mentors from Mass General's Global Health Office and GE, which is offering an additional $10,000 to the team that makes the most progress in the next 90 days. That's Martha Biebinger from WBUR reporting. She's here with us now. Listening to that story, Martha, it seems like there's a movement to try and solve this crisis as it worsens. As someone who's covered this issue for years, do you have hope? Yes, I think we're seeing a lot of really creative solutions and people with the both political, capital, uh, intellectual will to make them happen. What's sobering, John, though, is that at the same time, we're realizing that the numbers keep climbing. You know, we're not at a peak with this epidemic yet. And we don't have a long-term plan for people who will be dealing with addiction for the next 40 years or or whatever of their life. So uh, while there's a lot of great attention and focus on this, it's unclear whether it will be enough. Martha Beaminger covers health for WBUR Boston and Common Health. Martha, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. The group that's most at risk for a fatal opioid overdose is ex-prisoners in the first few weeks after being released. And given the destructive cycle of drug-seeking for those who are addicted, jail or prison can seem to be inevitable. Even those who don't overdose are very likely to relapse into drug use within a month after leaving jail. WNPR's Lori Mack visited a pilot program underway in New Haven, Connecticut, that takes a new approach to addiction treatment that starts before an inmate gets out from behind bars. From basic needs like housing and income to reconnecting with family and navigating medical care, inmates face a range of challenges after being released from jail. And for addicts, that can often lead back to drug use, crime, and prison. 51-year-old Kevin Hill was a former officer with the Connecticut Department of Corrections. Been through some riots, been through some bad times with the DOC, and then became an inmate. I've been in and out since 1994, and I've done nothing but live under a bridge. I've had nothing since 1994. He's battled a heroin addiction for years. During his last sentence at the Willard Cybulski Correctional Institution in Enfield, he learned about Living Free, a new voluntary program that integrates addiction treatment, health care, mental health, and peer mentorship. We're at the program's main clinic in New Haven with Yale psychiatry professor Sherry McKee. She says inmates need to know that their risk for overdose is exceptionally high once they're released. Because individuals have lost their tolerance, and without the education that they've lost, their tolerance. They're at very high risk of overdosing. Kevin Hill seems uneasy at first telling his story, but he's anxious to credit the program with helping him maintain his sobriety after being released. He'll be sober 15 months October 7th, the longest time he's gone without using in about 20 years. 
He says what makes this program different is the support and time he's been given. Instead of here you got 30 days to get your life together, here's a $50 Walmart card and I'll move on, you know, and it's never been successful. The Living Free program is a partnership between the Yale School of Medicine, the Connecticut Department of Corrections, and the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. The aim is to treat addiction among the prison population and reduce recidivism. It's funded by a three-year, $1.2 million federal grant. Yale's McKee says they've been enrolling inmates since March. The minimum treatment time is three months, with no maximum. Care is completely individualized for the client, so we might keep somebody for, you know, even up to a year. And very often we have people who have now elected to stay longer than the minimum treatment stay. For now, the program primarily recruits from the York Correctional Institution for Women in Niantic and Willard Cybulski. There are plans to expand to a third. To qualify, inmates with addiction problems must be imprisoned for a minimum of three months and be returning to the New Haven area when they're released. Lindsay Oberleitner, associate research scientist at Yale, works directly with the DOC to recruit eligible inmates. And then once they're out, the program maintains very close contact. Our community advocates meeting them to get them on the medication that they need, meeting them at a housing agency to help them coordinate that. Some people are having every single day contact as they get out if their needs are high. Community advocates like Jerry Smart are a big part of the program. I know because I've been incarcerated. The number one goal is that you want to be successful. I want to get out. I want to be a part of my kid's life. I'm going to get a job. That's the dream right there. The hard part is when you come back in society, and everything starts moving in slow motion. You know, everything is not instant. Everything is a process. 52-year-old Mary Ellen agrees. She's requested we not use her last name. She's a college-educated mother of three who ran a family business, but anxiety, depression, and alcoholism led to prison time at the York Correctional Institution. She's in the Living Free program now and has three solid months of sobriety, the longest she's been sober in years. Here I met with their psychiatrist. He asked me questions that I've never been asked before, but that's because he took the time to know Mary Ellen. Where in rehab, I don't know if it's time, I don't know if it's money, but they don't do that. And again, I'm not proud, but I've been to multiple rehabs. And Living Free facilitators say their program could be more cost-effective. According to their research and data, a client can be treated for around $4,000, while it costs the state of Connecticut about $52,000 a year to keep an inmate behind bars. That's WNPR's Lori Mack reporting. For more stories about the opioid crisis in our region, go to nextnewengland.org. Now a quick letter to the editor about our episode in late August that looked at a secession movement in New England. I mentioned a group called the Second Vermont Republic that was, in the words of Rob Williams, a leader of that group and publisher of the Vermont Independent, trying to resurrect the spirit of the independent Vermont Republic that existed between 1777 and 1791. In that segment, I said the following. The Second Vermont Republic movement is also not without controversy. The Southern Poverty Law Center has linked them to the Alabama-based white supremacist group League of the South. And indeed, the SPLC did do that back in 2008. Rob Williams took exception to this characterization, and he sent us this statement. The Second Vermont Republic, or 2VR, is a peaceful citizens' movement opposed to the lawless imperialism of the U.S. government. 
the domination and corruption of the national political process by Wall Street and the corporate monopolies and dysfunctional concentrations of wealth that are hallmarks of neoliberalism and corporate globalization. He goes on to write, We embrace freedom and unity, Vermont's communitarian state motto, as well as Vermont's unofficial creed of live and let live tolerance. We oppose both empire building and state-sponsored institutional racism in all of its forms, including race-based policies and programs sponsored by the U.S. of empire at home and abroad. And we do not affiliate with secession movements that promote racism and xenophobia, such as the U.S.'s League of the South or Italy's Northern League. If you have a letter to send us about our program, please send it to next at WNPR.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Coming up, is the traditional dairy farmer forgotten in the New England-wide movement toward local food? Find out next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. The harvest season in New England will wrap up soon, but for our region's principal agricultural product, dairy, production never stops. That is, not until a farm goes out of business. And dairy farms have been folding at an alarming rate. According to a new documentary film, Forgotten Farms, New England has lost 10,000 dairy farms in the last 50 years, and many of the remaining farms are struggling. Here's a clip from the film. We've seen a lot of changes to agriculture in New England over the past 40 years. In some communities, the local food movement is thriving. Farm to table, farmers markets, and CSAs, the movement grows stronger every year. And for many, the new farmers have come to define agriculture in New England. They're celebrated everywhere, magazines, television, films. And it's important that we support local food production. But our enthusiasm for the movement obscures the fact that much of New England's agriculture is under threat. Sarah Gardner is the producer of Forgotten Farms. She teaches environmental studies at Williams College in Massachusetts. Sarah, welcome to Next. Thank you so much for having me. So, Sarah Gardner, where did the idea first come from to make this film? I teach environmental planning at Williams College. And actually, I assign my students to go out in pairs and each interview a farmer. And they all came back and they'd all interviewed new food farmers. And we have two big commercial dairy farms in town and nobody talked to them. And that made me realize that this generation isn't really aware of the dairy industry and their idea of farming and farmers is the new food movement. And, you know, I asked them, why didn't you talk to those, you know, either those big dairy farms? And they said, we didn't know they were there. Um, so I wanted to show people that they were there and that they're really important. In some ways, do you think that this new local food movement actually poses a threat to the traditional dairy industry? No, I, I wouldn't say it poses a direct threat. But I think what's happened is it's redirected attention to that different kind of farming and a different philosophy towards farming. And it's it's sort of redefined how the general public thinks of farms. Um, a lot of energy and attention and publicity is going to these new food farms, which tend to be quite small and produce quite a um, small amount of food. Um, and that is to the detriment of our commercial dairy farms because 
they are producing a lot of food that we need. Um, and so they're not getting the attention. And on the contrary, they're often getting disparaged for their methods. When you talk about how many dairy farms have been lost over the course of the last several decades, give us some numbers. Because as you say in the film, I mean, these really are these really are stark numbers. There's been just the decimation of this industry. More and more farms are going out, and the farms that are left are getting bigger, and many of them are going out. The milk prices now are at a at an all-time low for this decade. All farmers have been losing money the past over the past 12 months. And the Agrimark Co-op, which is a big New England co-op, has lost about 10 farms. 10 of their member farms have gone out of business every month the past 12 months. You mentioned the price of milk, and there's a, a section of your film about how the price is set and how complicated it is. Let, let, let's listen to a bit. I've been in this business for 65 years, and I don't know how they set the milk price. And I could show you on paper, and you would never know. Milk pricing. Yeah. Start here, and this is what we get paid all the way through here. There are probably more people in the country that understand the theory of relativity, the theory of strings, the theory of everything to understand how milk is priced. It is so complicated. Well, it's set by the government, set by mostly farmers out in the Midwest and West. Um, and... So do you understand how the price of milk is set? <laughs> the Massachusetts Commissioner of Agriculture for several years doesn't understand. Um, I understand it to the extent that I understand it's not fair to the producers and it's not fair to New England producers because it's a federal price and it's set by the federal government and it, there are different wholesale prices for different regions of the U.S., but it is not matching the price of production. That's the crux of the whole problem, is that they're not getting paid enough for their milk. You have to wonder, um, why, as a society, don't we value dairy enough and dairy farms enough to pay them enough to have a decent standard of living? We expect them to keep producing milk, and really, truly, they are many of them living on the edge of poverty right now. As you document in your film, though, it, it wasn't always such a struggle to make a profit. Let's, let's listen to another short clip. My grandfather milked 12 cows, brought the milk into the cellar of the big farmhouse there where he had a milk cream separator. He made butter, and with the income from that, he sent six kids to college. And uh, from the income from my wife and I in the last 20 years or so, we were milking 125 cows and sending 2 million pounds of milk a year down the road going broke. <laughs> and Sarah, that's what's so interesting to me. It's that farming across the board is a very, very hard business. You don't know what the weather's going to bring one year to the next. There are so many factors that are out of your control but your film seems to suggest that despite this kind of boom and bust cycle that New England dairy farmers have been living with for their entire lives and for generations before them, that this is a particularly critical time, that it's harder now than it's ever been. Right. And it's it's harder now since I completed the movie or since we completed the movie. Of course, I made this with <laughs> with a director, David Simons. Um, 
but when we started, it, it was actually a pretty decent milk price. But things have gotten worse, and as I say, it's, it's sadly ironic that now that the film is out, the title has become even more relevant. And we have the new food movement, and one of the problems with that for dairy farmers is that they're upping the numbers of farms so as I think um, Lorraine Merrill says in the film, in New Hampshire, according to the census, has 4,000 farms. But something like 75% of those earn less than $10,000 a year. So if you look at the numbers, if you, you, know, if you pick up a, a magazine or, or go to a restaurant that's a farm-to-table restaurant, you get the impression that this is a thriving new food movement and that it's producing a lot of food and that the farmers are making a lot of money and it's really wonderful. And it, it's not its not really, it's a very small amount of food. And a lot of these new farms are also losing money and they're also struggling. So nobody is doing really well in this new food movement with the exception of some CSAs that are very, you know, a pretty successful model. And then some farms that are actually owned by restaurants, where there's this direct relationship, that seems to be a good model. Let's listen to another short clip from the film. We figure in New Hampshire that more than 70% of our farmed land, actively farmed land, is supporting dairy cattle. That working landscape that people so cherish about New England. The dairy farms are the lion's share of what people see. And it's funny because people don't think of dairy farms, and maybe they don't like them, but what they hate even more is when all of a sudden their piece of wide open land that somebody used to manage is now turning into houses. A lot of the people who own property in rural or suburban areas love the the notion of the farm. They love the, the view that it provides, but they don't always like two things the high taxes they pay, and sometimes a, a new housing development might help to defray some of those costs, and they don't love the smell. And so how are those two things playing uh, uh, real important roles in, in the struggles that farmers are having today? It's, it's really hard for these farmers. You know, people complain about them driving their farm equipment on the road. They complain about their spreading manure. They might complain about the noise. It's, I don't like to think it's hypocrisy. I like to think it's naivete. The land is very visible, but the product isn't visible to, to the community as a local product. And so people just really don't get it, and they, they complain a lot, and they maybe don't even make the connection that this th- beautiful, open 300 acres is there because of the dairy farmer. So, I mean, one reason we made this film is to sort of be the voice for dairy farmers. And we really mostly made it for that audience who are aficionados and followers of the new food movement to say, hey, look, this is the original local food in New England. It's milk. It's the biggest local food product. We're more sufficient for dairy products than any other food product. And um, it should be considered a local food, and, and we should all you know, appreciate it for that. So what do you think needs to change for the dairy farm industry in New England to have more of a future? Is it about federal policy and, and setting milk prices? Does it have to do with land use practices or just people's attitudes toward farming? I mean, what is it you think needs to change? Of course, 
I think attitudes need to change, and um, but I don't think that's enough, and I don't think it's going to happen soon enough. Like I said, this is a crisis right now. We could lose all the farms left in New England, and we already have less than 2,000. Um, they're going out at a, quite a clip, especially in states that have no support programs. Um, New Hampshire and Vermont don't have any support, any price supports, neither does Rhode Island. There are programs that work a little bit. For example, Massachusetts has a dairy farm tax credit. It's just keeping the bottom from falling out. It's it's not a panacea, but it's better than nothing. And it's kept a lot of Massachusetts farms farming this past year. New Hampshire is losing farms at a much faster rate because they have they have some program on the books, but it's not funded. Other states have found some other solutions. Maine has... Um, tax abatement program for farmland and farmhouses, which is very helpful. I don't think the federal government is going to offer a solution. Uh, The last farm bill actually made things a lot worse for dairy farmers. It's got to come from the state. And also there are things that local governments can do. They can reduce their property taxes that they're assessed at, for example. I don't think people quite realize when, when we show our film Most of the people in the audience afterwards say, I had no idea this was such a crisis. So I believe, I like to believe that if people knew what was going on, they would care and they would want to, you know, pass policies that would help their farms stay open. Once people see the film, they really get it and they all, you know, their hands shoot up and they say, what can we do to help? The film is called Forgotten Farms. Sarah Gardner teaches environmental studies at the Center for Environmental Studies at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We've posted a trailer for the film on our Facebook page at Next New England. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Patrick Gray and Mike Garth. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, empowered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.